first day of class at a new school and you don't know anyone, you look around and see people clustered in groups, talking, laughing, arguing, and studying. You wonder where to sit. You find an empty desk near the window. In the desk next to you, someone sits down. They're looking around and it seems like they're a little lost too. You make eye contact and acknowledge each other with a brief nod. Later at the cafeteria, you see the same person sitting alone at a table. You decide to sit down at the same table and introduce yourself. Relationships are a fundamental part of our lives, whether it's friends from school, family, significant others, colleagues at work, or acquaintances on social media. Our social support networks have a huge impact on our health. A meta-analysis by Holt Lundstand and colleagues in 2010, published in PLUS Medicine, found a 50% increased likelihood of survival for participants with stronger social relationships. This finding was consistent across age, sex, and initial health status. For this two-part relationship health series, we spoke with Professor of Psychology and Chair of the Psychology Department at Oberlin College, Nancy Darling, and Liza Henry, a social work and public health graduate student with extensive youth work experience about relationship health and its impact on health and well-being. Before we get started though, here's a quick quiz. Can you name the other person in these dynamic duels from history and pop culture? We will reveal the answers to these questions at the end of the episode. One, Sherlock and... Two, Buzz and... Three, Tina Fey and... Four, Key and... Five, Cleopatra and... In this episode, we wanted to learn more about the psychology surrounding relationship health. We spoke with Professor of Psychology and Chair of the Psychology Department at Oberlin College, Nancy Darling, to learn more about this important public health topic. We hope you enjoy our interview with this amazing researcher. I am Nancy Darling. I'm a Professor of Psychology at Oberlin College. Um, I do research on adolescence, mostly on adolescence relationships. So parents, uh, romantic partners, best friends, unrelated adults. And I've studied them on all the continents except for Australia and Antarctica. So I've done it in Europe, in North America, South America, Africa, um, multiple countries in over several decades. Wow, that's very neat. Um, and how did you become interested in your work? It's actually, weird. I, when I was in graduate school, I was really interested in parents' relationship with their kids. And I actually wanted to study infancy or toddlers, but we were doing survey research and they can't do surveys. So I wound up studying adolescence. And it was only later on that I came to really appreciate, well, I liked adolescence as people, but appreciate it as a developmental phenomenon because it's such a pivotal time because they're entering they're going from their family to forming these new relationships, strong relationships with peers and romantic partners, and then they're transitioning into adulthood. So I now can't imagine studying anything but adolescence, but I got into it because adolescents could do service. And 
why are healthy relationships and maybe healthy relationships specifically with adolescents something that we should be particularly concerned about um, in public health? And also, what are the potential consequences of ignoring this issue? Well, I think I'm a student of Yuri Brackenbrenner, so ecological systems theory. So I find it difficult to think about people as individuals without thinking about them in a social context. So it doesn't make sense to me to think of anybody, and certainly not a teenager, as them by themselves without, and thinking about their mental health because they're so embedded in a system and they're embedded in their friendships. And if you're thinking about mental health, you can think about those as different levels. So um, if I'm upset, depressed, all of those things where I need social support or the other side, we don't talk about it a lot, but being able to be really excited and share your joy with someone else is so incredibly important. And for, so from a, a positive size of romantic of romantic relationships, of healthy relationships, but also as a I need support part, both of those things, being able to bounce ideas off of and your feelings off of um, other people is just really important because they sort of give you a resonance. It's like, is this just me that's feeling like that? Is it just, is it everybody that feels like that? Am I all alone? I think just getting a mirror to find out how to judge what you're feeling now because if, it, if you don't compare it to somebody else you don't know how unusual it is the other really dumb part of mental health that you don't really think about with relationships is um and and they've written they've wrote about this for a long time when you're by yourself you're really depressed you got nobody all you do is you sit and think about everything you think about what and so when you're alone one of the best things that you get really depressed, though one of the best things that relationships do is distract you from yourself. So there used to be this whole theory that said, oh, I, you know, friends are really good because you can think things through with them and bounce ideas off of them and it really gives you insight into yourself. No, that's not why friends are important. Friends are important because they get you to think about everything except for yourself. So they get you distracted from, oh, you know, this awful thing about myself or I'm so wonderful. They actually just take you away from yourself. And that is, in general, is really good for um, mental health. If you look at time diary studies where they ping you, you know, 10 times a day and say, what do you feel like? If you're by yourself, you feel lousy. And if you're with somebody else, your mood goes way up. And so I think it's really important from that perspective. Um, it's also, so that's just me by myself and, and just bouncing things. But the other reason it's really important to understand mental health is because we're very affected by the people around us. If our friends need social support, then providing that social support can be good for us, but it can also be really stressful. So a lot of my stress, for example, comes from stress from my kids or from my husband or from my students. So that from a mental health perspective, that network stress is really important to understand as well as network support and, net for, and good things about network. But so do things like healthy habits. So if I'm saying, oh, if I'm thinking about mindfulness, if I'm thinking about co-rumination, if I'm thinking about drinking to get away from my troubles, if I'm and all of those things which have a profound influence on individual development, we know that you find friends like yourself, like depressed people find other depressed people, 
but also that you make yourself more, you become more like your friends. So if you're hanging out with happy people, you tend to get happier. If you're tending, if you're hanging out with kids that are getting in trouble, you'll tend to get into trouble. And so there's an echo and sort of reverberation effect, which again is another reason why I think it's difficult to think about an individual and mental health instead of just a community context of health. I know you mentioned uh, just, I think at the beginning, you mentioned um, Brackenbrenner, I believe. Brackenbrenner. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how, uh, like, his theory and what that um, history of research kind of, uh, I guess, shapes in your own research? Okay. Um, Yuri Brackenbrenner, I think, is one of the great developmental psychologists of the last century. And I think he changed the way that we think about developmental psychology. So often um, develop, uh, psychology in general is criticized for being very focused on, well, actually his famous quote is, it's the study of children for the, uh, of uh, strange children in strange situations with strange adults for the briefest possible period of time. That was what the study with developmental psychology was in 72. Um, and he really changed it. He says, you can't think about the kids in, when you bring them into the lab, you're bringing them into a situation where they're in a strange place where they don't know people and you can't, and this idea of ecological validity, is that the way they act in the lab, is that the same way they act at home? If they're interacting with their parent or their best friend, are they, is that the same as the way they interact with a stranger or with an adult person? Is it the same as if is if their parent comes in and you study them and they're a high school, they have never graduated from high school, they've never been in a college before, and now they're in the strange lab and you think about, um, and they're feeling really uncomfortable and they're feeling judged. And that's really different from someone who comes in who's got a PhD and they come in and it's like, oh, this is my place, you know? And so understanding the meaning that people bring to the situation I think, and the importance of understanding cultural context of age, of ethnic diversity, of social class. One of the exercises I do in my classes is we look at the method sections of studies in neuroscience, in, in social psychology, and in uh, cognitive psychology, and in developmental psychology. So if you're a neuroscientist, they don't even tell you if it's a male or a woman, but they do tell you if they're left or right-handed. If you look at them, they don't tell you what country they're from. The country they're from, as if everyone's generic. My um, In social psychology, you'd think they don't report the country, oftentimes. They do report the gender. They tell you how much they pay them, but they don't tell you their social class, or they often don't tell you their ethnicity. If you look at a developmental psychology paper, they tell you their they don't tell you how old they are. They say they're college students. Well, are they 45 or are they 17? doesn't say. That seems important to me. I'm a developmentalist. But if you look at developmental psychology papers, they tell you the age, the ethnicity, the social class, whether or not their parents are married or not. <laughs> they tell you the country that they're in. They tell you all of those things. And the reason they do is because Brockenbrenner and other people said that social context matters. It matters what your ethnicity is. It matters what your cultural beliefs are. It matters what the norms are. It matters how you're being treated and where you are. And that has fundamentally changed the way that um, developmental psychology is. And I think it's why it's very dis different than other disciplines within um, psychology. 
Um, it's shaped my work. That's one of the reasons I work in Europe and, and the Philippines and in, uh, I forget Asia. I always forget Asia um, when I do my research. But one of the things, and this is an example of why I think Brenner's approach is so important. We were studying, one of the big things I've studied for the last um, 20 years is uh, why kids lie to their parents. They lie to their parents everywhere. It's universal. All the time. Every, almost every kid we've ever talked to says they lie to the parents. The ones that say they didn't, I swear to God, they're lying to us. But they really think almost all kids lie. They differ in how much they lie. And we were studying that in, um, we studied it in uh, Miami, Florida, and in the Philippines, which is a, was a former Spanish colony, um, and then uh, in Santiago, Chile. Right, so we have three countries that have three three countries or cities actually, who, which have strong um, strong uh, uh, Hispanic uh, uh, influences, um, and we were comparing. We were we were doing this, and we were learning about lying, and we had a hypothesis which was that um, kids would lie to their parents to keep out of get from getting out of trouble, and that in the Philippines, where there was this very strong norm of respect for your parents, there was a really strong norm of you need to be respectful of your parents, and that conflict, disagreeing with your parents, was very disrespectful. We said they're going to have the lowest level of conflict, um, and that Chile would have would be. We thought the, kid, the kids in the United States would be the worst because we always think that, and that Chile would be somewhere in between, and. We were looking at this idea of legitimacy of authority, which is this idea of um, why do you do what your parents say? It's because you're there, but your parents. Honestly, that is the reason. You could come up with, but it's really they're their parent. You're, it, I'm the mom, and I said so, and you're going to obey me because I'm your mom. That's and it's legitimate. So we were studying that. It turned out that. We got the relationship we thought, which is the highest legitimacy in the Philippines and the least lying in the Philippines, just like we thought, but they had the highest level of conflict. Now, it was considered really disrespectful to, to argue with your parents, but they had the highest level of conflict. Well, that's why you want to study people in different contexts, because we'd forgotten really two things. One is you obey your parents and you tell them the truth if you think they have a right to set rule, that's the legitimacy of authority. And you feel like you're obliged to obey. Why? Because if I, ha if I disagree with my parents and I feel like I have to obey, like they did in the Philippines, very high, they have three choices. I can shut up and be miserable. I can um, lie to my parents. Or I can um, argue with my parents and hope they'll change their mind. Well, if you think they're legitimate, you don't lie. So what you do is you argue. So the Philippines had this very high argument. In Chile, um, they disagreed with their parents, and they, but they thought their that that they didn't have to obey, so they just lied like rugs. So they, I mean, they were just like, and we that idea, and the United States was somewhere in between. It turned out identical things were happening in all three countries. It was a universal phenomenon, but we would not have known about this idea of obligation to obey. That was sort of a background thing in the literature no one paid attention to. It turns out that's the guts of lying, is I think you have a right to set rule and it's my job to obey, and therefore I'm going to argue with you. Otherwise, I'll lie. 
we would never have known that if we hadn't studied kid in the, kids in the Philippines because it was so important there. And that, I think, is what Brenner really brought out is this idea that in developmental psychology, he always said, anything important you can't manipulate. You can't assign social class. You can't assign ethnicity. You can't assign gender. So what you need to do is take care, take uh, attend to natural experiments, including culture. And by looking at culture, you can find universals because you see the differences, and that gives insight into the process. And that's really has fundamentally influenced my work. That really helps to put sort of the social ecological theory into into context. Um, could you share a specific example of how education about healthy relationships um, can improve the health and well-being of young people in the communities that you've worked with throughout your career? Well, one of the things, this is in some ways as a personal example, I could talk, I talk and I will talk about um, studies where they've, they've really tried to improve relationships. But um, you can talk about it in terms of parents, you could talk about it in terms of peer relationships, or you can talk about it in romantic relationships. So if you think about, for example, um, my work on monitoring and lying um, uh, came out of, in many ways, work by um, uh, Jerry Patterson and Tom Dishian at the Oregon Social Learning Lab. And they started with this idea that you can't parent well, and you can't have a good relationship with your parents, unless you they trust each other, right? So lying is important. And also they know what's going on. And so one of the things they, they, they really worked at is they studied, um, uh, they studied parents who were, got into these coercive things of kids. They basically were training their kids to be bad because they would only pay attention to the kids. Not, nobody trains their kids to be bad on purpose. But if you only pay attention to your kids when they're misbehaving and when they're good, you ignore them, you get the right kid, especially one who's kind of rebellious and wants attention, that that they get into these coercive things where the kids would start being as obnoxious as possible because if I want the table set and my kid's giving me a 10 minute argument about it, it's easier for me to set the table. And so they were the kids, these are toddlers and, and preschoolers, were training their parents to not withdraw, to withdraw, to not ask them to do stuff. And that trained the kids to be as obnoxious as possible. And when you, they, someone asked you to do what you wanted and you didn't want, and they didn't want to do it, to be really obnoxious so that they'd give up. And so the kids left school, left home, and they went to school, and then they pulled the same thing with their teachers. And if you're in kindergarten and you're in trouble with the teacher, none of the other kids want to play with you. So they become socially isolated because none of the good kids will play with them. And the te they're in trouble with the teacher. And they wind up only playing with the kids who will play with them, which are the other misbehaving kids who train each other to do this more and more often. It's a reinforcing cycle. Really wonderful work. And what they did as an intervention is they didn't work with the kids. They trained the parents. They did an intervention where they trained the parents to reward, to pay attention to the kid when they're doing the right thing, catch them being good, they always talk about. And that improved their relationship with their kids. The kids then learned, because if, if you're always obnoxious, not only do you not get trained to do, you don't, um, you don't get trained to do, to 
develop good social skills which can carry over. Parents are really foundational in forming good peer relationship skills. And so they weren't learning that because they were always arguing with their parents. And so by training the parents to respond appropriately to good behavior instead of ignoring it or making fun of the kid when they would be good, suddenly these kids are, oh, I can be good. Give me attention for being good. I can be good. And that carried over into their school relationship, and they also then got much better peer relationships. So that was a really nice example of you're trying to affect school and kids and, and peer relationships, and what you do is you retrain the parents. And that was, I think, a really nice um, example of, of uh, that kind of thing. Um, you can also see it, and I think this is one of the hard things. So I was, I was using this example this afternoon, um, and it's a personal example, um, but it's, the work actually comes out of Jeff Parker's research. My son just happened to be in a school where Jeff Parker was doing research. So he was doing an intervention to stop bullying. And what he did was um, they had this big thing, and it's a middle school, and they were teaching him about bullying. Um, and what you should do and intervening and all that good stuff. It was a great program. But my son and his best friend, Bo, were riding home with me on, on the car. And his Bo started telling me about how we'd been on the bus and they'd gone to the pool. And this other kid had come over and started making fun of him and started putting makeup on him and doing all this stuff. Clear bullying behavior. And I stopped him, and I and he was really upset. And I stopped him. I said, "Didn't you guys just do bullying behavior?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, what are you supposed to do?" He says, "Well, I'm supposed to tell the teachers." I said, well, "Why didn't you do that?" He goes, "Oh, I never realized I was being bullied." Because, and I think this is really important, we were taught, this is the context we were talking about it and we were developing a social media campaign this afternoon for the Journal of Adolescence and we were talking about um, cyberbullying. And this is the same thing. Heath was thinking bullying. Oh, I'm getting beaten up. I'm getting threatened. Someone's calling me names. That's what bullying is. Being harassed, being made uncomfortable, being all of the things that were happening to him, he didn't label it as, as bullying. And I think that can be really important too, is just, oh, I'm being sexually assaulted. I'm being teased. I'm being gaslighted. Having words for those things and being able to label them yourself, I think is a really empowering thing of it's not just me that's it's not just me I feel bad I'm in a relationship and this is what it's supposed to be like it's like oh I feel this way because this is a crappy way to be treated and everyone knows that it's a crappy way to be treated and I think part of the interventions that you can have is not just how to stop it but even just how to recognize it and they've done re they've done relationship training stuff in Montreal. Looking at that, when you one of the things you say is, well, you start, first start a romantic relationship, and you know you're 14 years old and stuff, and you start dating or you start going out with people, and you say, well, how is this supposed to be? Well, if you have no way to judge what a romantic relationship is supposed to be, you've got friends. But all you've learned what romantic relationships are supposed to be is going to be porn, online pornography 
or romance novels, you don't have a lot of context to put in what's okay and not okay. And so I think one of the things that, um, that some of this intervention has done is not interfere with bad relationships, but just describe what you deserve, what's a good relationship. So you say, oh, that's what I'm looking for. And I think those can be really important interventions also. One of the things I know that Ed Smith um, at Penn State did, he was doing a lot of work with Planned Parenthood and looking at sexual health. He's, he's a, a public health worker. Um, uh, he has a, a PhD in, in public health. Um, is they set up a, a, a sexual health clinic across from the high school. The kids wanted that stuff too. Condoms are always great, but good, easy to sell in high school. But what the kids actually wanted is they wanted to talk about relationship qualities. They wanted to know, how do I get a girlfriend? How do I keep this person that I care about? How do I make them happy? How do I make myself happy? How do I talk to them about things that are important? I think we spend so much time often looking at their sexual health and their their substance use and stuff. We forget that, I mean, actually, I, this was a quote from one of our research studies. We were saying, we, were ta we started talking about lying. We started studying lying because we were studying romantic relationships and kids lie about their romantic relationships to their parents. That's how we started. But we said, well, what's going, you know, what's going on when you talk to your parents? He goes, I'm worried about holding her hand and they're worried about me getting her pregnant, <laughs> you know? And so they're at really different places. So I think we need to just pay attention to what we were nervous about because those kids are still nervous about those things, except they've got these standards from pornography that they're supposed to be, that they're looking at. That's a really good lead into this next question about um, barriers to a health relationship and education. You were talking about sometimes we don't really meet people where they're at um, and sometimes focusing on the the wrong part of the equation you know the the more more serious more traumatic experiences might overshadow the everyday experiences that a lot of teens have so can you talk a little bit more about other um, barriers that you've come up against um this sounds, um, when we first started studying romantic relationships, we had, were told explicitly, we were funded by the uh, National Institute of Health, we had to take the word romantic relationship out of the grant title. And the reason we had to study the romantic, take that out, is because um, Congress, in their wisdom, had said that studying puppy love was a waste of taxpayer money. So at the time, and this was, I mean, um, people were, you could study, it's really interesting, they would only study sex because it was a health problem and intercourse, specifically intercourse and STIs were the only thing that they could study. Now, as far as I know, most people's uh, sexual intercourse in, teen, in adolescence do in fact take place within romantic relationships, so it seemed logical that you would study them in that context. But they saw um, that there we used to be an award given out for um, it was called the Golden Fleece Award for the biggest waste of taxpayer money. Carol Faring, uh, Candace Faring got that for studying romantic relationships because they said puppy love was stupid. And um, so we, our grant was about 
parents, peers, and romantic relationships, but we had to take romantic relationships out and just put the word relationships in so it wouldn't be flagged as a waste of taxpayer money. So that is a barrier, is not taking it seriously, is that people say, um, you know, relationships come and go so fast that they're not really worth it. Well, first of all, it's actually interesting. You don't know how foundational they're going to be. You're learning to be in romantic relationships. People have really good or bad relationships, and they the biggest predictor of, dep of depression, suicidality, and mood changes that are very, people say mood changes really fast in uh, adolescence, which it does. It's not because of hormones. It's because two things. One is you're in romantic relationships, and they, you, they tend to be emotionally very volatile, and that's one of the major causes of emotional volatility. The other actually is, I just love this fact, is it's because you go, if you asked me, if any of us went from math to gym to uh, science class to the cafeteria, we'd change our moods too, and that's what we do to teenagers. Um, so, but one barrier is really, well, and the other thing I was going to say is in some relationships last a long time. I am, this is really embarrassing, but this is true. I am married to my first date. I, I started dating him my first week in high school. We are still married. It's been a long time. So, so there's a lot of reasons to study uh, romantic relationships, and particularly sexual relationships, I think, in adolescence. But people don't take them seriously, and I think that is a real barrier. A second thing that's a barrier is people trivialize the emotions of teenagers because they say, oh, it's just a phase, they're just teenagers, and they don't take it seriously. Well, it's nine years of your life, the second decade of, you, of your life. It's nine years, it's a long time. Um, and it doesn't matter if, it, if to an adult it may seem trivial, it's really important at that time, and it's just as important to them as things are in your as you know, other things are to you. And I think that that's a, another barrier is that we, we don't take teenagers' emotions seriously because we trivialize them, or we say, oh, they're, you know, they're all going to be suicidal, or they're all going to be this, or they're all going to be that. We really stereotype and stigmatize um, adolescents for normal emotions in a way that we don't younger kids and we don't older kids, and, I mean 20-something uh, or 30-something. Um, and I think we, we pathologize them as if there's something wrong with them instead of the, treating them as if these are normal, healthy people having normal, healthy relationships. So I think that's a barrier. But because we focus on the developmental risk, now this is actually interesting because I think, because for an adult having a healthy um, romantic relationship is seen as being core to your um, happiness and drinking is seen as normal. A lot of leisure activities for adults are considered a pathology in adolescence. So we study, we talk about romantic relationships in the context of pathology and problems and sexual exploitations. Now it's not like those things don't happen and they're not important, but we all, I think if we fostered positive relationships and say, this is the good stuff you're looking for. This is how to build a good relationship. And if you're not getting that in your relationship, you should leave and find someone who treats you better. That to me seems really important. But instead we talk about um, consent instead of saying, well, consent is important, but it's like, well, did you want to be there in the first place? You know, is this the person, this is the relationship you want? Is this going to help you go toward your, toward your goals? 
Or are there other things you want? This is part of your relationship, but a big part of teens' relationships, especially in early high school, and in fact, all through high school, is hanging out, playing games, going to the movies, doing things, bowling, I mean, stupid things that are fun. We don't teach people, we don't teach kids how to foster um, a positive relationship, either with their romantic partners or with their other friends. And this is um, a friend of mine, Linda Caldwell, who I did a lot of work with. She studies, of all things, um, she studies leisure, she's in leisure studies. That sounds like an awesome thing to be in, but she's in leisure studies and she studies boredom. And, um, which is a big topic right now with COVID-19. But it's but knowing how to fill your time and feel good during your time is actually a real skill. And if you don't have that skill, you do spend a lot of time waste playing through the internet, you know, as we all do. But it was it's actually interesting. I thought she gave wonderful insight into this idea of boredom proneness. So, like when I was this is true. I mean I'm old. So when I was when I was a kid. Um, we had lots of times that we were bored because we came home from school and our parents were our parents were busy doing stuff and they said go outside and play or watch TV or do whatever right so we had to figure out things to do now over time we found things we liked we liked watching this TV show we liked reading we developed stupid hobbies we learned to play kickball stuff like that but we had a lot of leisure time that we had to develop the skill of how to use so we weren't bored all the time and trust me when at least for my neighborhood if you said I'm bored your parents said I got a room that you can clean I've got these chores you could do so you were really motivated now if you think about that in a different context this cohort of kids um, in the last several cohorts of kids they're in they're in daycare where their time is actually very structured they've got circle time they've got snack time so they actually are always have someone to structure their time for them and then they're going to school where their time is structured and then they come home and they're in after school care because their parents are working so they also have their time structured for them and they've had their time structured for them till they're 13 and now they come home from school and they got nothing to do because they don't need after school programs anymore so they actually don't have a lot of experience figuring out what they like to do on their own and learning to structure that time. Which means when um, you're really lucky if you have a friend, because some kids are so incredibly good at finding, oh, let's do this or let's do this or these are fun things to do. But if you don't have a friend like that, it means actually you don't have the skills to fill your leisure time. So you tend to fall back on easy, high, easy, fast things. I can click on this, I can do this, I can, you know. But that skill, I mean, that filling your leisure with enjoyable activities and finding things to do with friends that you both like, and then also resolving conflicts because there's always a lot of conflict. All that sort of informal play stuff that Piaget talks about as you learn with unstructured time. Brockenreiter talks about you learn with unstructured time. Kids have not had a lot of unstructured time in childhood to learn that. And suddenly they're dumped there in adolescence when they've got between 2.30 in the afternoon and 6 to get in trouble, which is the most likely time you're going to have sex or get involved in delinquency. It's not at night. It's between 2.30 in the afternoon and 6 o'clock. 
And part of it is the skill. So I think teaching kids how those kind of skills to develop hobbies, to learn how to play Dungeons and Dragons, to learn how to have good conversations that are fun and everyone's having a good time. Those are skills, and I think there are real barriers to teaching that kind of skill. We say, oh, let's give them something to do. It's like they don't need that. They need actually to learn how to structure their time. They need to let, be leaders. They need to not learn how to organize. And they learn how to make themselves what they like and what they don't like. If you don't know what you like and what you don't like and learn how to structure your world so more things you like happen, you're going to have problems with any kind of relationship because you don't know what's good. You just go along with what happens. That leads really well into our next question for you as well. I'm curious to know, you talked about pathologizing healthy relationships during adolescence as sort of a, a barrier. Um, I'm wondering if we were, instead of pathologizing healthy relationships, if we were to focus more on education around that area, um, what are some key skills that we would want all adolescents to build? I know you mentioned knowing what to do with your leisure time and resolving conflict. What are some other things that would help adolescents as they, as they go into their adult lives? I think a couple, it's, it's funny, I haven't really thought about that. A couple of things that are really hard for adolescents are entering groups. It's all of us. You think, oh, I'm moving into this. I'm, there's a group of people over there and I want to join them. Well, how do I do that? That's actually hard. That's a skill. Um, how to um, make someone else feel welcome. Nobody is more popular than the person who turns to you and says, oh, hi, why don't you come over? Learning how to introduce people and support them. Um, look, this sounds, this is weird. One of the, another real hard thing for kids to learn how to do is to be successful. So how do you get 100 on a test and not everyone hate you? So, I mean, you always talk about, oh, I'm going to be embarrassed because I failed this test. But people who get um, A's also get, you know, you get, they get dissed a lot too. Well, it's really hard to be, to be successful gracefully without, feeling, without bragging. So you can say, oh, I feel really good. I did this thing. And I'm not, it's not that I think I'm wonderful, but this is something that I'm also proud of. And so being successful with grace I think is interesting that you could have discussions about that because that is really important is you want because otherwise you say I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm doing well I'm going to hide my success which has all sorts of implications especially you have it, you have those kind of things and um, there's some really nice work looking at, at ethnic differences and who's cool and who's not cool but that's but that pathology but that stigmatizing of real success is true in all groups but looking at that, I think, um, how, do you, how do you succeed gracefully without making, so you succeed and you make other people feel good too. I think those are things um, that are really good. I think teaching people how to apologize is a ridiculously undervalued skill um, because all of us hurt other people's feelings and being able to expose yourself enough to say, I did, I'm really sorry and not just, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings because that doesn't say you did anything wrong, but but saying um, I'm I hear what you're saying to me and I'm listening to but I think learning how to apologize is really important for relationship maintenance um, in all types of relationships to your parents to your peers and to your um, 
to your romantic partners. I think all of those things, because we all screw up sometimes, and I think that's a really um, good skill. Um, also, just how to, uh, I talked about relationship form formation, but how do you maintain it? So, for example, what are, this sounds really dumb, but how many people get their feelings hurt because they, they um, text someone and one person says, oh, I don't need to respond to that text. And the other person says, oh, I do. So you can't tell if you're being ghosted or not. Those kind of things. Sometimes you are being ghosted and sometimes you and your best friend just have different ideas about when you need to put a thumbs up in the thing. I mean, there's just these really, what kind of, what are, what is appropriate and not appropriate to do in social media, social, I mean, all the different forms of social media from, you know, TikTok to um, Facebook, well, Facebook people don't use it like, anymore, but, but all, um, uh, Twitter and Instagram and all the things, what's okay to share and not share? That idea of maintaining your privacy, but also maintaining your friend's privacy is actually a really important skill because people get their feelings like, I told you that, but I didn't say you could share it on uh, Instagram. I didn't say you could tweet about it. I didn't, say, you know, I didn't tell, say, oh, I got a mass tw uh, tweet, or I sent you, I sent you this picture. I didn't send the world this picture. And I think that idea of, um, both we talk a lot about protecting our own privacy, which of course we need to do, but intimacy is built on sharing private information. And there's this whole, I mean, part of our research when we talk about lying is. Um, I tell you something and I'm trusting you to hold it in confidence and because it's my information. I've given it to you and I didn't say you could give it to the world. And I think those types of skills about what is appropriate relationship maintenance in terms of doing that. How many people's friendships have ended because they've done something stupid on the social media? Um, so I think those kind of things are, are, are something that I've never seen a class in, but I think those would make great discussions um, around trust. How do you build and maintain trust? And that's all about trust. Our final question for you today is um, how, can, how can folks, especially our listeners, um, become involved in or support work in advancing healthy relationship education within their own communities? Um, there's a lot of different organizations that do that. Actually, some groups that do really good work with this is um, and are really open to this are the most traditional churches actually do a lot of work. A lot of youth groups do really, really good work talking about um, building relationships and trust and openness because they tend to foster the positive parts of things. And I think that um, they may not know how to do it, and certainly some of the people that run the youth, but running a youth group, um, volunteering to run a youth group is actually a really um, powerful way to get involved in a lot of kids' lives um, because they are so, can be really core in a thing. So I think that is an, the other, another group that is actually really open to this and does work is the Girl Scouts. Um, and some, um, you know, so a lot of times those are, they're more active in uh, elementary school, but elementary school is a wonderful time to learn how to build friendships, especially late. Fifth and sixth grade is a big time for Girl Scouts and they have some fantastic programs actually on relationship skills building. I have no idea what the Boy Scouts are doing, but I know that the Girl Scouts are doing some really good stuff. So churches and Girl Scouts are actually really good. Big Brothers, Big Sisters are always uh, a good organization, although those tend to be more one-on-one. -on -one. Um, 
Another group of people that tend to um, uh, do a lot of this work is actually either health education or gym education in middle schools and high schools. A lot of times they have units and they, they you know, the first thing you think about is the sex ed stuff, but a lot of times um, the, the people who are trained in that are actually your home ec teachers have often really good training in family life sciences and they actually run those programs and so do the gym teachers. And a lot of times they want to have a discussion, but if you're a teacher and you've got 24 people, having a couple people in that organization to help can be really good. Uh, Planned Parenthood actually runs a lot of things on relationship stuff. A lot of those uh, uh, women's health organizations talk about that also. But I usually think of um, big institutions like things like Scouts 4-H of all places, Scouts 4-H, churches, um, and schools um, often have those those kind of things. There are also, of course, crisis intervention sections and stuff like that, but they tend to be about crisis and not about, oh, let's, let's get you in a good relationship. Um, the other thing is if people are in college, there are every single college has lots and lots of different focuses on um, sexual health and, and crisis center. I think it can be really positive to set up a, um, I know at Oberlin when they've set up things on building positive relationships, those things are so crammed. You know, and not and like I said, it can be relationships broadly. It doesn't. I mean, we focus on romantic relationships, but you know, building friendships is really important. And especially now, with so many people go back and forth between, you know, you start being best friends with someone, and suddenly you're in a in a romantic relationship. That happens all the time. So I think just building good relationship skills. You build them in one context. They work. You build them in one context. It carries in friendships. It carries over to romantic. You build it in romantic. It carries over to friends. I think you just need to learn to be a good partner. Thanks so much, Dr. Darling, for taking the time to speak with us. We hope that this episode has helped our listeners better understand the topic of relationship health from varying points of view. Please join us for our next relationship health episode, where we will hear from Liza Henry about her work with educational programming that supports healthy relationship development among young people. We will also share the answers to our quiz questions. Thanks for listening.